Association. 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 That was such uber ponage. Hello, fellow nerds from the studios of WBNS Radio in Columbus, Ohio. This is the Nerd Association Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Barnett. And in place of your other host, Mark Finch, at least at this moment, uh, we are going to be bringing you the second half of our discussion on The Lord of the Rings, another of our megasodes for this early part of the year. And today we are going to be tackling The Two Towers and The Return of the King and sort of wrapping up our thoughts on the series. Me for the millionth time chops, uh, more or less for the first time. If you haven't already, it might be useful to go back and listen to our first part of the discussion. Probably not strictly necessary, but might be helpful. And as I will allude to at the end of the episode in a few weeks, we're also going to be releasing an episode on the Silmarillion and what we know about Amazon's upcoming series, The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power. So stay tuned. In the meantime, let's jump back into our discussion in media res, uh, starting with The Two Towers. Thanks for listening. So so we get into Two Towers. I'm trying yes. to remember where like the second... the. Fellowship also seems like really more compartmentalized because it's like, yeah, it seems like one movie um, and I know where it ends. Obviously, I know where it starts because where everything starts. I know where the third one ends. I can't really piece together where the third one's and it's because I watched them close together too. But but like, where does the third one start? Where does the second one end? Where does the second one start? I'm not fully. It's interesting you bring that up because when writing Two Towers and Return of the King, You know, it's this very modern convention, and they do it in the movies where you intercut the scenes from the different storylines, right? Tolkien didn't do that. Mm -hmm. He spent half of the book on the things that Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas were doing. Here's what they did during this time. And and he spends the first half of the book with that, and then literally says, okay, and then while that was going on, this is Frodo and Sam's part. The ultimate meanwhile. (laughs) Exactly. But he spends half the book on one, half the book on the other. And, And so, you know, Peter Jackson did have to figure out and did a good job. And it's, there are some obvious ways to do it. Like even when you read the books, Tolkien tries to give you landmarks. So, you know, like while this was happening, even though they're split up exactly in half, like while this was happening, this was also happening at the same time. And same thing with return of the King. There's, you know, Frodo and Sam's narrative is handled completely separately from all the rest of the narrative. And it's only at the very end of the book when you actually have everyone come back together again. And it's a, becomes a more cohesive narrative. Um, so it, it was confusing. The author didn't do it a super great job of it when he wrote the books, if you want to say it that way. But Two Towers starts with Frodo and Sam in the Emin Wheel, the rocky sort of right before the swamp, the rocky area, mm-hmm. which is where they meet Gollum. And Two Towers starts with Gimli, Aragorn, and Legolas trailing Merry and Pippin, who are being carried off by the orcs. Yes. And so that kicks off the the ring making its way to Mordor storyline, and then the sort of battle for Middle-earth vis-a-vis the struggles of men storyline, mm. essentially. Um, which I know you had some feelings about Rohan and the Rohirrim. So this Rohan just gets introduced, just plopped down on us at the beginning of this movie, and I don't understand why I should give a shit about Rohan. <laughs> Well, one, because they are the sort of first line of defense between Saruman and Gondor. So as Sauron is amassing his forces in the east, Saruman has created this other force, right, near the south of of Rohan, which if no one stops him, they're going to come in and do a pinch maneuver on Gondor and destroy them utterly. Mm. So Rohan has to sort of keep that from happening. And also it's a demonstration of how Sauron has corrupted Saruman and Saruman has corrupted other people. And like what that Saruman's sort of plan is, is is a small version of what Sauron's plan would be, which is to corrupt those in power and use them to make your enemies fail. So you can come in and take over. And is it just because people have such a respect for the King that he can look like that and have slimy Jack White whispering in his ear <laughs> that they just go, this must be our king now. We I, have to accept it. In the, I mean, in the books, he's a little, it's a little less. It's a little more subtle. It's a little more subtle. <laughs> I mean, still not great, but it's a little more subtle. It's more that just Theoden is corrupted in, in again, not 
<laughs> heavily made up ways with weird whiskers flying out of his face. <laughs> um, your point's well taken, though. Like, they did dumb some of that down a little bit. But like, I will say this. Tolkien didn't take the Rohirrim nearly as seriously because even in writing the history of the Rohirrim, every sort of king is just named some Norse variation on the word king or lord or thane or whatever. Like, mm-hmm. he didn't spend a, nearly as much time naming them or thinking of their history as he did with Gondor and and Arnor and the other, you know, the elves and all that kind of stuff. They were a set piece. They were there to sort of help explain how, the way a war would work. Keeping in mind that Tolkien was a World War I veteran and knew something about warfare and was thinking about how different nations are can war at the same time, even if it's just part of one conflict. Yeah. I think another thing that makes Two Towers a little bit harder for me to to tack down after just one watch through is... um. You really got one story in the first one. Then in Two Towers, it splits off into three stories that you're following. Then kind of back more into two stories in the third one. And then finally back into one story, one story at, the at the end. In Two Towers, my favorite of the three stories is Merry and Pippin. It is very good. <laughs> because, again, it's it, Tolkien's message with The Lord of the Rings is that... And Gandalf says something to this effect. It's not great deeds that save the world, right? It's the sort of small deeds of normal people that make the biggest difference. And Merry and Pippin are a good example of that. They're not even the good, they're not even the cool hobbits in the story, right? They're the dopey, well, they are to kind of turn out to be cool hobbits, but like they're not the characters you care about at first so much. Mm -hmm. Well, and it almost seems like until the last hour, again, extended editions, of the two towers, it's just like, why are they like, yeah. I mean, I get why they're there, like factually, but it's just like, what's the point of these guys? Yeah. And then they, then they're sometimes haphazardly. And then it starts to turn into their, okay, they, they're making decisions that actually right. make sense. But the things they do come up big. Yes. And, and by the end, like not to jump the gun here, but they end up both being nobility. They're, they're esquires and, and knights of, of Rohan and Gondor. Uh-huh. Like, and those titles stick with them for the rest of their lives. They're given special treatment as, as these important guys for the rest of their lives. And, and yeah, but it's, it's part of that maturing process, right? They start off as ch- essentially children. Yeah. And something that's not made clear in the movie that's made really clear in the books. In the books, as we discussed, Frodo's 50 years old when he leaves the Shire. Mary, Pippin, and Sam are all still considered what they would call tweens. So hobbits reach physical maturity at the age of 18, like humans do. Mm-hmm. But they're not considered adults until they turn 33. That's the age of maturity. Which kind of. Society should be more like that, right? <laughs> but all of them are younger than that when they leave the Shire. Frodo is an, is an adult, and they're not. And yeah. so there's this story You get a coming them. of, especially with Mary and Pippin, you get a, a lot a coming of coming of age. Of age. Yeah, Absolutely. So. And that's probably why I like theirs the most, because I love coming of age stories. So that 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 part really works for me. And they they escape the orcs when it, but you think, did they? Did they? Oh, yeah. you don't. Meat's back on the menu, boys. And then they <laughs> then they get attacked by the Ro- Rohirrim. Uh, Rohirrim. So the Rohirrim yes. are the, the, yeah, the horseback, the, are the horseback riders. Uh, led by and that's Eo- not that's not Boromir's less popular younger brother. That's no, that's Aomer, which yes. is the nephew of King Theoden. Okay, so Aomer and Eowyn's parents died, and they came to live with their the king their king uncle. But but you do see that Theoden's son gets killed early on in those conflicts, right? Mm-hmm. And the, and and they have that scene where the king's like doesn't know his sons died. And it's like, my king, will you do nothing? And then he comes out of it, and he's super sad. Yeah. And there's that line that's like really poignant and beautiful and also a little bit too on the nose. It's like, a father should never have to bury his son. And it was like, okay, <laughs> Peter, we get that this narrative is there, but you did kind of put a fine point on it, which I, at this point, I don't know if that's in the theatrical cut or not. I have no idea what is theatrical and what is extended edition at this point. Yeah. So that might not have been in the theatrical cut, but... Anyway, it's interesting the way you talked about the books and how it's like, this is this story, this is this story, and they just cut it right in half and told it like that. Because when you're looking at this, it's chronologically in the second one, it's hard, again, for me to be like, when I'm thinking about it back now, like, when did this happen? When did this happen? When, you know, but because they never find Merry and Pippin. 
not, not not really. Yeah. Because um, they catch up to the orcs and they go in the, and they find Gandalf, who's like they're taking care of. We have other things we need to do. Yeah. Do. Yeah. And then, but then Merry and Pippin go off with the tree men, and mm-hmm. that turns out to be like just kind of a thing they're doing. Yeah. And they try to they they try to convince the tree men to help with the fight, and then Saruman. Don't do deforestation because then the trees will attack you. Interestingly, one of Tolkien's Tolkien intended that sort of conservationist message when he yeah. wrote the two towers. Because <laughs> keep in mind, he grew up in this really simplistic farm community that's like the Shire, and he de- himself decried that industrialization was destroying the world. It had because one, he saw all these machines of war that mowed down his friends mm-hmm. in World War One. And two, saw what it was doing to the countryside, that places were covered in smog and forests were getting, you know, cut down at this alarming rate and things. So that was an intended message. That wasn't just something that was tacked on later. Yeah. But yeah, Gandalf sort of leaves Merry and Pippin in the hands of the Ents thinking, oh, this will protect, will protect them. But then he also has that line that's like coming of Merry and Pippin are like small stones that precede the avalanche. And yeah, man, they rile up the Ents. (laughs) They get them to go to war and like and and beat up Saruman and his people and you know ruin Orthanc so it can't be used as a as an industrial mm-hmm. purpose anymore the trees uh, come to life and find they are strong and they're also pissed off like you know what is it when they when the 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 tree council or whatever yeah. the entmoot and the, the, he's like well are you guys going to fight and he's like we've just finished just taking a, roll call or good something morning yeah. <laughs> which by the way just a little bit of trivia. That's John Reese Davies, who plays Gimli. Okay. He voices Treebeard, which is a cool sort of, uh, you know, I don't know, cool to think about. Um, uh, we, By the way, we can't get... I told you there are certain moments that a Lord of the Rings fan has to tell you when you watch the movies with them. We did not talk about the fact that when Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas find the burned orc corpses, mm-hmm. what am I going to say? That uh, Viggo Mortensen broke his foot. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You just have to say it. You know, again, th- you want to talk about memes from those movies. They're like whole TikTok threads of people being like, Lord of the Rings helpline. How can I help you? We're watching the two towers and it's that scene. And it's like, you just need to say it. Don't you go ahead and say it. You know, when Viggo Mortensen kicks the thing. Yeah. So it's, you just have to, you have to talk about it. Anyway, we've talked about it now. We can mm-hmm. move on. So that, that's kind of what's going on with Marion Pippin that during the, the second one. Right. And then you've got the the Sam and Frodo is really hard for me to keep track what happens in the second and what happens in the third. I know the the death swamp is in the second. Correct. Because they meet Gollum in the Emin Wheel, the rocks. Mm-hmm. He takes him through the death swamp. The death swamp, by the way, is where the War of the Last Alliance, that big battle at yeah. the beginning happens. So, yeah, because they don't really... There's some ring wraiths who try to come in when they're in the death swamp. But they fly overhead. Those two don't really have a major confrontation in the second one, if I'm... Uh, I mean, they get kidnapped by... Or kidnapped. Taken prisoner by Faramir and the ringers. And, you know, Frodo has that confrontation with the ring wraith, the the Nazgul on the fell beast, and he, like, almost stabs Sam. But it's... You're right to say that, like, the, the main point of the two towers is Frodo is being corrupted, and you see him very much as the foil to Gollum. Mm-hmm. That like it becomes quite clear to both Frodo and the the audience that if they don't do something, Frodo will become like Gollum. That's in some ways is identical to the book. In some ways, it's a little bit overplayed in the movies because Frodo has a little bit more agency. He's a little less helpless in the books than he is in the movies, but not by a whole lot. There's a fun relationship in that one, too, where uh, I'm blanking on Gollum's real name. Schmeagol. Schmeagol. Where he through Frodo, it's almost it's almost like decorruption. Like they're Correct. they're fighting for corruption and decorruption because he's kind of coming out and sort of shedding the the Gollum skin and, and and it's helping. But then he then he feels like he's betrayed when Frodo tricks him into being captured by yeah. Boromir's less less popular younger brother, <laughs> Faramir. There you go. And it's in in the books. It's interesting because. Gandalf gives Frodo Gollum's backstory in the fe- in the Fellowship. It's made very clear to Frodo, Gollum is what Bilbo could have become, and what you could become. Well, he Gandalf doesn't quite say it like that, but it's like it's what Bilbo could have become, and what could happen to any Hobbit who was under the sway of the Ring. Yeah, and basically says like, but Gollum could still there still may be good in him. Remember that, and 
And Gandalf also is the one who says, I feel Gollum may have some part to play in this. And he's right. At the end of things, spoiler alert, it's not Frodo that destroys the ring. Yeah. <laughs> it's Gollum that destroys the ring, even if it's accidental. And he does act as like their guide sure. to get into Mordor. Yeah. Even even though like he tried his darndest to get them killed on the way. Like <laughs> So yeah, their their story is much more of an internal conflict than it is an external conflict, and of course that is that's on purpose. Tolkien, yeah, Tolkien shows you that like these sort of war and evil and things like there's different ways that evil corrupts and evil defeats. Like sometimes it's it's out in the open and it's with bloodshed, and sometimes it's internal. And then you mention war, and that's where the other, the third story is going right. in this one. And they meet up with Gandalf the White, and he has this like spirit wizard confrontation with Saruman to get the the king back, to exercise him essentially. Mm-hmm. Then they send slimy Jack White away. <laughs> Aragorn has two of my favorite things in that part of the the movie. One where he uh, he's being tempted by another fair lady, yeah. And she makes him food. And I it's really small. They don't do it like it's just there. It's not really supposed to be much of anything. I don't feel like but it's just really funny the way that's acted where he eats the food and it's just and like yeah. that's not like a scene that hasn't been in other movies, but I don't know. I in this that was one thing that surprised me when I watched these three all the way through. There was a lot more humor than I had anticipated or thought there was. And it and it is a funny moment and it's also character development because it shows you like Eowyn is not just some common broad, right? Okay. She's she is this shield maiden who is destined for great things, and but in in other ways she's like, I, I want to be careful how to frame this, but you have to remember when it was being written and by whom. She's not your she's not your typical woman, and she can't do your typical woman things. And in, it's the she's not like other girls moment. Yeah, it's almost like she's a she's definitely the pick me girl in these movies, yeah. right? Uh, but it, I think the the implication is like Aragorn is is attracted to her, and they make much bigger deal of that in the movies than they do in the books. She's a much smaller character in in the books in some ways, but I think the idea is like she really isn't a common lady, and there's a reason that Aragorn has that attraction to her because she's not common mm-hmm. and not just common in the way that she's lordly, but like she's so far removed from being the, your typical woman that she can't cook to save her life. Yeah. And, and is that in the same moment? Maybe I just like this scene because I practice, if I had been drinking something, I would have done a spit take. I just the, the audibly, 80, the 80, I was like, Aragorn's 87 years old. <laughs> yeah. So Aragorn is, Numenorian or of Numenorian descent and something you'll find out in the Rings of Power series is that they live to be old. Even Aragorn, who didn't live nearly as long as his ancestors, lived to be 210. Yeah. And so, yeah, it is it is a sort of funny moment that when you're not expecting that, like, what? He's 87? <laughs> and you and I talked about this when when we were watching the movies about how there's this whole side narrative where... Aragorn becomes of age and like goes out into the world and has to take on a different name to hide his identity. But he goes and like fights these important wars with the Rohirrim and helps them win and then goes and fights these important battles with it's the like Gondorians. The, it's like the one good scene at in X-Men Origins Wolverine, the only good scene in that whole movie where him and Sabretooth fight through all the wars yes. of, of the, the like the last century and a half. And it's very much like that. And not only does it set up that thing where it's like, oh yeah, he fought when, with Theoden's father when Theoden was, was a child and also fought in these wars with Gondor and became the favored person of Ecthelion, the father of Denethor. Denethor always felt like he was second fiddle to another person. Mm-hmm. And that's why he treats Boromir and Faramir the way he does. In a lot of ways... He's the Faramir of that story, uh, Denethor is, which yes. I know we're not there yet, but he he knows he's seen Aragorn before, and there's even this implication that once he figures out, oh, Aragorn was Throngil, the name he took when he was here, like, he hates him even more. He's going to keep him from <laughs> claiming the throne no matter what. So then Gondor is where they spend most of the third one, because they go to something end, uh, what is it, where, they, where do they go where the battle is? In Helm's the Deep. Helm's Deep. Yeah, yeah that's it. And Helm's Deep is awesome. It's like such a it's such a cool, well shot battle. Peter yeah. Jackson is so good at letting you know the stakes and the tides of the battle by focusing on particular characters, right? Mm-hmm. He gives you 
he gives you particular characters to care about and to use as measuring sticks for how things are going, as opposed to trying to make you take the whole battle scenes and figure it out for yourself. Mm-hmm. And he even is good at putting it, one force is always on the left side of the screen and one force is always on the right side of the screen. And you know whether one side's doing well or not by how they're advancing on the screen. It's like that. Yeah. It's, it's subliminal almost at that point. But Helm's Deep is a, is a kick-ass battle. It's so good. Yeah, and one thing that makes it, and I feel like you're probably not going to get this uh, too much more in how filmmaking is doing something of that scale where the opposing the opposing team, I guess is yeah. how I'll say it. Uh, they're live action. Yes. Because now all these superhero movies, and they're great. We, li- we love to talk about them. But it's always CGI. But it's always a CGI, yeah. gray, you know, no face group. The thing, I mean, and and certainly there's a lot of CGI in The Lord of the Rings. And, and some of it, as we've discussed, like Gollum holds up today as some mm-hmm. of the best CGI. I mean, yeah, you can tell CGI. It's not worse than a CGI in most big budget movies today. And that was 20 years ago. Yeah. The thing that's great is a lot of the effects are practical. A lot of the shots of things like Helm's Deep and later Minas Tirith, this this Gondorian city, are scale models that they do shots, you know, flyover shots of these real. Pra- it's practical effects. I love the New Zealand B-roll that just shows up throughout all three movies. Yeah, where like they clearly just filmed a lot and said, "We'll figure out ways to, to get it in there." We talked about <laughs> when they were lighting the beacons in the third movie. Yeah, how they basically just like t- had to have just taken a helicopter out one day and flown over a New Zealand <laughs> mountain range, and then like, all right. Here's how we're going to use that. Those shots. Those are cool. Let's so, yeah, the, the Helm's Deep battle. And there's a really good tug of war in the Helm's Deep battle because it seems like the the good guys are, are winning at one point. They're not quite getting it. And then the torch bearer comes in and there's the explosion. And then it's, oh, now we got to retreat even more. Uh, the that I Can I just say that that's one of the scenes like I don't know a ton of Elvish. But that scene in particular is how I learned the phrase "kill him." Dagor high, Dagor high. It's it's just one of those things. It's like okay, now I've learned a little bit of Elvin. Yeah, <laughs> I had this to to say to Jen when I was watching that scene. I was like, you know, there is some parts in this that are just a little too goofy for me. That like, I have a really hard time believing Tolkien wrote. And then Legolas surfboarded down a flight of stairs while shooting arrows at the oncoming threat. I mean, certainly that didn't happen. <laughs> but it plays into this idea that like Legolas is super light on his feet. Yeah. And he never misses. You, I think you said that to me. Like, Does Legolas ever miss? And even when he doesn't bring down the torch-bearing Urukai, he hits him every he time. He hits him every time. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Legolas is supposed to be super... Elves are supposed to be super cool. You're supposed to be like, man, yeah. wouldn't it be cool to be an elf and be this these like unbeatable badasses? Yeah, yeah you're supposed to think that. It's like that idea of, yeah, people who walk in the room and everybody notices them yeah. and they, they seem, yeah, lighter than air. Uh, and in elves' cases, they basically Literally, are. <laughs> yeah, their bones are hollow, yeah. And then it doesn't look like it's going very well, but Aragorn and Gimli Do the save the day for long enough for... This is a Game of Thrones reference for a Knights of the Veiling to happen yes. where they just come from behind. It's, oh, we have the cavalry's here. We're, I mean, we're okay. Fair play. I believe the Game of Thrones is a Lord of the Rings Probably. reference. Yes. <laughs> yeah. For, you know, show up on the dawn of the fifth day at sunrise. And isn't that a cool scene, by the way? Yeah. And it just demonstrates to you. And this is one of those things. If you talk to like medieval war- warfare experts, they'll tell you like. If you were in a battle and suddenly the cavalry showed up and just started plowing downhill at you, you would be scared out of your mind. You would run or you would get trampled to bits. Yeah. And that's exactly what happens. And it's very cool. Yeah. Can you imagine being at the back of a battle and being like, well, good thing I'm not all the way up there. And all of a sudden, and all of a, sudden a horse is charging at you. And just literally rolling that one thunder. Horse. Yeah. yeah. A wall of horse. Rolling thunder. Just <laughs> bra, 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 bra. Yeah. No. And there's that, that good line of, you'll have to toss me. Yeah, I can't make it. I but can't make the jump. You don't tell me. the elf. Don't tell the elf. And that part is, uh, again, with like the tug of war. I, I like that part. You, uh, there's something fun. I'm watching a a zombie show on Netflix right now that is doing a really good job of like these people are in this situation and like how are they going to get out of this room? They need to get that. And like right. the problem solving type stuff. When you think, well, what would what would I do? What would be like the next step to make sure that the, so when they're they're tearing down the door. And it's not just, oh, we're just going to keep trying to push him back. The The problem-solving aspect of that right. is entertaining to well, watch. Well, like I said, that's an example of how 
how Peter Jackson is good at letting you know these are the stakes and these are the pieces, the chess pieces you should be watching to know how things are going. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's this very much cause and effect thing. We're like, okay, the door's coming down or is going to come down. So we're going to send Aragorn and Gimli out. And it's going to be really clear that they're succeeding because they're going to be knocking all these orcs off and the door's going to stop coming down. That front's safe. Mm -hmm. And then, but on this other front, now that, you know, the war towers are coming in or the big, the you know, giant ladders with, grappling hooks like, yeah the wall gets blown up again it's very it's it's simultaneously very sophisticated and very easy to watch a, a child of appropriate age to watch that kind of a scene could tell you at any moment who's winning and who's losing yeah. that's good filmmaking one of the things you know you often see lord of the rings and game of thrones compared on lots of fronts i think one of the places game of thrones fails is it's not good at the battle scenes are not good at, at telling you that, giving you that kind of baseline information. Well, because before the Knights of the Vale show up, that's the Battle of the Bastards. Right. And that one's basically just a, it's like, just a yuck in the mud, yeah. and it's just you don't know what's going on. Yeah. It's a great battle. It's not not to take away from it. It is very yeah. entertaining, but you're right that like the, the tug-of-war aspect is not there in that one. Right. And you have to remember, like... For for all the sort of like George R. R. Martin is like it's hyper realistic and everyone's dying and this you know here's the tax policy and blah 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 and that's fine I don't have an issue with that from a world building perspective but you're telling a story and I think that's where what Tolkien was really good at right mm -hmm. he was telling first and foremost he was telling a story and you could understand the story and Peter Jackson picked up on that really well and did a good job of translating it that like this is a this is a fairy tale or a fantasy story. And it should be, even if there's all these layers of complexity and history and all that stuff, at its base layer, you should be able to understand what's going on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's sort of in the superhero genre that you have to find that balance of like, yeah, you want it to be dark and gritty and realistic, right. but like not too much. And it's like that thing that people have problems with like, well, why didn't they just fly the eagles into Mordor? And there is a historical narrative reason for that, like a, a reason in universe why they couldn't do that. Mm -hmm. We can talk about it at length if we have to. Other people have done but it. But it's before. not really important. The answer <laughs> is, first and foremost, it would have been a bad story yeah. if they had just jumped on eagles and flown to Mordor. <laughs> a, a, and that wouldn't Lord of the worked. Rings was a nice 90-minute movie. <laughs> yeah, and that wouldn't have worked for reasons that, again, we could get into. But even if you want to pretend it could have worked, it would have been a bad story. Mm -hmm. Tolkien wanted to write a good story. So there's reasons that like complicated things happen. I think people who watch Lord of the Rings for the first time, too, figure out this cycle of, like, anytime a good thing happens on screen, a bad thing's going to happen really soon. Like, anytime there's a moment that's, like, kind of warm and fuzzy, a bad thing's going to have to happen really soon. And, like, does life actually work that way? Who cares? Life isn't a story, <laughs> it, you know, in the most literal sense. But, anyway. but uh, I mentioned the humor aspect, too. That's one thing that I actually enjoy about that, because that's something that I think gets lost in a lot of movies. And it's hard to, you know, depict like, well, this might have been what life was actually like back then. But I like there to be some levity because there always is in life yes. like there are still jokes when guys are at war and there's still things that happen that are amusing like it's not it's not just the sun doesn't go away and like everything is terrible for the whole time i've been in news for 12 years during some tough times in human history <laughs> and one of the things i've always said is if you don't laugh you'll cry <laughs> i mean and it's that way in it's that way in this these kinds of stories too like if you can't find a way to bring some levity to the story in universe and out of universe, people will just become, there'll be just despair. And that's not a good story either. Yes. <laughs> right. You have to have a reason to like these characters and see them liking each other and see them building those bonds. And so there have to be warm moments. There have to, there has to be humor. And even the books had humor. I mean, Peter Jackson certainly brings modern humor into it that wasn't in the books, but it was there in the original too. And mm -hmm. it just might not have been the same joke in the same place. They win that battle for the most part, but then they, they go in the third one, they spend all their time at the, the Gondor. At Gondor. Mysterious, yeah. Or on their way there, they pick up Mary and Pippin who are having a great time in the, the, the food trust. Of the <laughs> Orthanc. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Isengard being the sort of region Orthanc being the name of the tower. Okay. Yeah. One before we sort of get too far away from it, the two towers book ends at a very different place than where the mm -hmm. two towers movie ends in that and I, I won't say spoiler alert you've had 70 years to read the books <laughs> frodo and sam make their way into kirith ongol which is the sort of rocky stairs and tunnel where they meet shelob the big spider and at the end of the two towers book 
the reader thinks Frodo is dead. Frodo gets stabbed by the spider and wrapped up and carried off. And Sam like takes the ring and the reader thinks Frodo's dead. Mm -hmm. Obviously they chose to do that very differently in the movies. I think for good reason. Yeah. But it's disorienting if you've read the books and then go watch the movies because that doesn't happen until almost halfway through the third movie, yeah. whereas it happens at the end of the second book. Uh, accepting that and and now you know realigning the narratives, yeah, the Return of the King is very much about okay, we've had the prelude battles happen, we've we've cut off some of these sort of attacks from the West and from Saruman and his forces. In the books, Saruman doesn't get killed there. He's just ban- He's just kept prisoner for a while. Mm-hmm. But they do find out information from him. They do get the Palantir, the sort of seeing stone from him. And then, they, yeah, they move on to the bigger conflict, which is, again, Gondor is now under attack because, again, Pippin, it's all Pippin's fault, but he does a good thing. <laughs> Pippin picks up the Palantir and makes Sauron think, that he's the hobbit with the ring and that the hobbit with the ring is traveling with Gandalf and Aragorn. And so Sauron picks up his schedule, his war schedule, because he thinks, oh shit, they've got the ring because that was something that was something that stood out to me in the third one. I was like, if Sauron's main goal, I mean, there's, there's, there's other goals, right? The main goal is to get the ring back and we'll go from there. Why does he keep, trying to attack them and it's one he's sort of tricked into thinking that Pippin might be the one and then the other you pointed this out to me that he doesn't think that anybody would be that brash to walk in you know one doesn't simply walk into Mordor that they would just send two guy two hobbits to just walk in and destroy it Sauron only understands power right he only understands force and so the sort of script was flipped Sauron would bring an army of 50,000 people to try to get the ring yeah. But but again, Sauron can't conceive of the fact they would destroy the ring because he can't think that way. His brain doesn't work that way. To him, the ring is not just part of him, but it's it's the part of him that he holds the most dear and he would do literally anything to get it. Cuz until it's destroyed, he never really accepts that like the plan that they're actually doing is the plan cuz then he, then the big eye turns around and, and it gets all wide. Well, yeah, and remember <laughs> at the last moment Frodo puts the ring on yeah. right before the end. And yeah, the eye turns and all of a sudden all the surviving Nazgul turn tail and start booking it to Mordor because Sauron's like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> that That's where the ring is? Like he's sure that Aragorn has it or that somebody in his company has it. That's yeah. why he sends all of his forces to face them because he thinks, oh, I can get the ring. They must have the ring. Mm-hmm. I guess we got slightly ahead of ourselves. Yeah, but, but, but you're right. No, it's worth thinking about that like that is... Again, Pippin does a, what we think is a dumb thing, but it's the reason that it all works the way it works, mm-hmm. is Sauron accelerates his plans and he focuses on exactly the wrong place for the rest of the books and the rest of the movies. Pippin plays dumb, but he knew what he was that's doing. That's right. That's that's my canon, my head canon on that, is that Pippin did everything on purpose. I, I love Return of the King, and this isn't really a complaint about... I, I do think that sometimes a part of that movie that's off-putting is all of the prep before the war. It's good character building. I understand why they do it. Denethor is just such a jackass of a character. I was just about to say something on the prep before the war, because I was like, well, basically there's four events... And then an epilogue in right. that one. There's the the Battle of Gondor, the maybe it's just three. The Battle of Gondor, the battle outside of Mordor, and then getting the ring into right. oh the spider, and then getting the ring into Mount Doom. And so like those are the main the, four there's events. There's also Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas going to get the Ghost Army, which by yeah. the, we we watched and you were like, this is cool, <laughs> <laughs> and it is cool. It's a very cool scene. It has it as we discussed. It has some of the cheesiest lines in the movie. Mm-hmm. And somehow it still works, right? It still pays off. Yeah. Because Vigo Mortensen just like goes for it. And also because it's just so cool, you have to forgive like that it has been remade. And he grabs <laughs> him by the throat and he threatens him with a sword. Like it's just it's just cool. But yeah, I know you're right. There's like the Shelob attack is a big event. The battle at Minas Tirith, the battle of Pelennor Fields is the big is what that's called is the big event. Okay. There's the battle outside the Black Gate and then the destruction of the ring. I will say Battle of Pelennor Fields, it's so much bigger in scope than Helm's Deep. It's not nearly as claustrophobic feeling, and there's so much cool stuff that happens in that battle. But it's interesting. They feel very distinctly different, mm-hmm. even though they're just, again, big, big old battles, big old set-piece battles. Tell me about your feelings watching the Battle of Pelennor Fields. 
because I think t- to me, I mean, Helm's Deep is is very cool, and I think a lot of people would call it their favorite scene. But like that battle is also has lots of cool yeah, stuff. Yeah, so on. that would be the one with the with the elephants, right? And yes, yeah, the elephants are really striking, and also like once it starts to not work, questionable choices to, <laughs> to make as far going. as a battle goes. Yeah. Like it's you know because once they start to figure out ways to take down those elephants. Those guys are screwed. Yeah. <laughs> they can't there's no way to bail out of it. Right. Once once they're up there. Uh and then yeah, when the when they show up with the ghost army and because they do it twice. They have Aragorn do that twice. He does it with the ghost army where he runs in with yeah. the sword up and it's and then I was like, ooh, that's the one on the cover. But I think it's the other one. Because he does it again at the battle in front of the gate. Yeah. And he does it again. And I was like, no, I was like, and when I was watching, I was like, no, I think that's the one on the cover. <laughs> and it might just be a different promotional image sure. that they did for the cover, but it, he does that same that same Dance, move yeah. uh but yeah and then again that's another like the cavalry's here moment but in a certain way i guess that's just the realism of how battles, battles were, were back right. then yeah i think the the witch king is a really cool addition to that battle you know first that he he blows up gandalf's staff mm-hmm. so like sauron has put has all all his power-ups into the witch king and then the sort of you know no mortal man can kill me a thing that most people obviously Eowyn stabs him in the face, and that's the sort of the killing blow. But a little cool detail from that: Mary stabs him first. He's also not a man in the <laughs> sense of like a human, right? Yeah. And he uses the blade that he's carrying was one that Aragorn. So in the books, it comes to him differently, but Aragorn gives him this blade that was made during the wars of Angmar with the Witch King, and they were specifically wraith killing blades. So when he stabs the Witch King in the leg with it, he, like, weakens him. Only then can Eowyn deliver the killing blow, which I think is a neat little detail. That it's a team effort. He gets killed by a hobbit and a lady. Yeah. No man can kill me. Something that's overlooked. It's just really cool. As I talk about this one, it becomes apparent that, like, the action is so much more in the forefront of this one. It feels like there's less like lore type yeah. stuff it's all come to, to break down this one yeah and uh so it's really entertaining again something that is really entertaining on the screen but in another medium podcast form it's yeah. not uh, it's not it's as- hard to say too much about it because yeah, yeah it's obviously the, that still counts as one is is a great moment where uh legolas takes down one of the one of the, the elephants. elephants yeah yeah and Mary saves Gandalf when he's like, you need to get back out of here. And then he saves him right Pip- after Pippin that. Pippin saves Gandalf. Is it Pippin? Yeah. Okay. And then <laughs> again. Yeah, no, I get it. I get it. I get and it. then he's like, thank you, but get out yeah, of here. Get, get out of here. <laughs> There's, of course, the scene where Denethor tries to burn Faramir alive. That's weird. Yeah. I also, you know, when we were watching it, there was that when Faramir and Eowyn, like, both are in the hospital, essentially, and they, like come out and immediately she's like oh there's a man (laughs) oh look there's a a handsome man now we're a couple perfect exactly the there's like a green light or right before they go to the spider thing i don't know what that was um i just i think that's it's the witch king leaving minas morgul which is the was originally the sister city to Minas Tirith until Sauron and his goons took it over. Okay. So it's like the it's like supposed to be the bastardization of Minas Tirith, the white city, it's the black city. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think in the movie they just use it as a way of like signaling like oh the shit's about to go down. Yeah. Like it's about to hit the fan because uh you know the big the big green beacon uh, pops off. It's fun how and this is probably just a testament to Peter Jackson how they can balance the scope and side just the the vastness of these battles and then they go back to Sam and Frodo and it's like you ate all my bread and you're hanging on it with the same amount yeah. of care <laughs> maybe more in yeah. some ways yeah you and I talked I have a hard time watching narratives where characters are clearly being set up mm-hmm. and there's no, either they like either they know it or there's nothing they can do about it and that's a hard that's a hard scene to watch man mm-hmm. Because you just want to shake one of them and be like, this is what happened. You idiot. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then of course, good old Sam, uh, who, by the way, Tolkien considered Sam to be the hero of these stories. Mm-hmm. Tolkien went to war with three of his friends, World War One, and three the other three didn't come back. And so Sam is very much based on his best friend that went to war with him, and he views him as the hero. And Tolkien sees a lot of himself in Frodo. I mean, I don't know that it's one for one, but when he was writing those four characters... 
that's who he was thinking of. Mm-hmm. Sam is just the best. Like everyone needs a Sam in their life, right? Everyone, everyone deserves a yeah. Sam. Although you wish he could have pieced together the bread thing without having to find the <laughs> physical the crumbs, evidence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you do wish that, but you know, you take what you can get. So the spider scene is super telegraphed, though. Yeah, and she, yes, it is. I mean, they let you know. They want you to dread it, and yeah. Shelob is super scary. Shelob is a spawn of Ungoliant, and just to give you a little bit of background, Ungoliant was this... They're not technically spiders. They are, like, pure evil in physical form that look like kind of like spiders, but then they have stingers, right? Ungoliant... Did Tolkien not like spiders? Is that... <laughs> there's a lot of stuff in Tolkien's books that are based on either, like, bad dreams he had or, like, recurring dreams he had or... Th- dreams his children had uh-huh. that he ends up like getting in there for for re- one reason or another it's weird because that's like the ultimate form of at least in the tv movie of it is like a weird it's not technically a spider but well, it is where, where do you think they got it um, <laughs> ah, there you go <laughs> and ungoliant was this like this spider-like creature that fed on light sources and every time she ate so she ate the first iteration of what the these two trees that were essentially the light the lamp posts of the world of the gods and she drained them of all their power with morgoth helping the original big bad and then she got so hungry that she turned on morgoth and tried to eat him and then he only escaped because he had a whole battalion of Balrogs, the big fire dudes that fought her off. Mm-hmm. And then she went and hid in some mountains and she got so hungry she ate herself. She consumed herself to death. Because uh, everything's super metal in, in <laughs> Tolkien. <laughs> the, the Silmarillion, in fact, like, uh, what's it called? Nightfall in Middle Earth is a metal album by this like Norwegian heavy metal band okay. go if if you like metal go check it out it's written about the silmarillion and the wars of the the gems and all that kind of stuff it's very cool and there's a section about ungoliant just like they call her the the mistress of her own lust lust not being sexual but just like having an insatiable hunger for something mm-hmm. and yeah she consumes herself because she gets so hungry anyway something we haven't mentioned here that i think stood out to me is like I know the hobbits are small, but Gollum was a hobbit, and he looks so frail, and yeah. like he can really hold his own when he's trying to fight back with those two. He's sturdy. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that there's this implication that he's just like all muscle, because he's just lived on, he lived in that cave for so long and just had to hunt with his bare hands and yeah. kill orcs and goblins. With <laughs> that he does, to the point where he doesn't even like real food anymore. He's just anymore. all muscle. Yeah, he's just all muscle, man. <laughs> just, yeah, he's just a, he's just a protein-bound freak that all he eats is raw protein and, <laughs> and right. lift rocks. That's, yeah, that's all, all he does. does. Well, and again, there's also the implication that there's something a little extra, right? I mean, Andy Serkis admits that he based Gollum on a heroin addict. Yeah, and there's this little extra something, right? That, well, he, yeah, because in the his, books, though, he's all he wants his, is that ring. Yeah. His body be damned. He's just trying to get, yes. his, yeah, he's just trying to get his next fix, and that's in the book too. But like Andy Circus really plays it up. But yeah, you're right. Golem does hold his own, and he keeps coming back. He's a tough little bastard. There's this really cool moment in the books that I wish they had done in the movies because it's just so awesome. That in that sort of final stretch before Shelob happens, Gollum like indicates that he wants the ring. And Frodo appears before the eyes of Sam and Gollum like he's wreathed in fire. And he like gets these big fiery eyes and his whole demeanor changes. And he basically says to Gollum, you've sworn an oath upon the ring and the ring is treacherous. If you ever touch it again, your life will be forfeit and it will be as though you should have been cast into the very fires of hell. And like if you ever try to touch the ring again, this is what's going to... He curses him. Uh He says like you better think twice because I'm cursing you on behalf of the ring and the ring will make good. And that's what happened. That, yeah. That's what I was it's, trying to say. That and, sounds like what happened. It's And in the book, it's this like cool bit of foreshadowing where Frodo's basically like, listen, dude, you think you want this? The ring will destroy you and it will destroy you in the most literal sense, not in some sort of corruption way. If you ever touch it again, it will kill you. He gets away after Frodo is stung by the spider monster. Yes. And then you kind of forget about him, and then he pops up Little, again. There's this implication that he might have been killed. He's yeah. thrown into this chasm, and you don't see him. Yeah, I yeah. think for the casual viewer, that's the end of Gollum. And it wouldn't... I mean, there's obviously narrative purpose and everything when he comes back, but it wouldn't have, like... 
Yeah, like it could have ended without him. Right. Like if he just found a way to drop the ring, Frodo did. Right. And so, I, I mean, I guess we're there, right? The most frustrating part of the film where Frodo, like Sam has this heroic moment. Wait, right like, before oh. we get there. Yeah. Even through all that and how dire their circumstances seem, to put the hobbits in the orc <laughs> armor and they're running around looking like a kid wearing their dad's suit. I was going to say, you, great. you had a great line when we were watching that, which was like, you know, the next step would have just been putting two of them on each other's shoulders <laughs> right. and wrapping them in a trench coat. Like, yeah, I mean, again, it's it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant little bits of humor amongst all the of. And of course, it's not funny to Sam and Frodo, yeah. but it's funny to us. And that they, you know, have the wherewithal to say, like, let's start a fight. We've seen this enough times. Now we know how they act. Let's start a fight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I said that, too, while we were watching it. I was like, oh, is it just a bunch like the orcs just can't help but infight? And you were like, yeah, get used to that. Well, there's there's this idea that, like, you know, they are born of the discord of Melkor and they can't they they don't know how to cooperate. Mm -hmm. It's a thing that's not in their vocabulary because cooperation is harmony and they're made of discord, you know, of chaos. And so, yeah, I mean, that's it's it's always implied that one of the reasons Sauron could never quite get it is in part because his forces weren't well organized. <laughs> they fought each other all the Whereas time. Whereas you look at the the buy-in and a term we use on Bishop and Friends a lot, give a damn yeah. of the people that Aragorn is getting like, I know it sounds like a suicide mission, but we have to go to the doors of Mordor to distract so that Frodo can finish this mission. One of the reasons the Urukai were a superior fighting force is because they were part man and men can be controlled. Men can be made orderly. Mm-hmm. Right. That's the idea is that we're taking a little bit of the orc out of them in that in that sort of um, that chaotic sense. We're not we're making them more physically imposing because orcs are sort of shriveled in that sense. But we're also making them able to be commanded yeah <laughs> and and mordor doesn't have urukai they're basically orcs and goblins and so yeah no it's it's i mean it's com- it's comedic but it also has a narrative purpose too which is again they're born of discord they yeah. can't get so orcs are just a bunch of little pissed off guys running around yeah. each other and you know you, you bump into one why is that and, and then it's a domino effect of them all and of course <laughs> there's like this weird this sort of like almost racism within the ranks of orcs that like orcs from one place are think they're superior to orcs of another place or goblins from this place. And like Mordor orcs know that like think they're better than Misty Mountain orcs. And you know what I mean? There's this like sort of weird superiority thing going on in a way that again, makes perfect sense when you're the bad guys. But yeah, then there's that, you know, Sam being the best version of Sam going up the mountain telling you know helping frodo remember the taste of strawberries and cream (laughs) and then putting him over his shoulder and carrying him up the mountain and uh, you know the triumphant music and all that stuff and then man that scene in the volcano it's so frustrating it's one another one that was like it's so frustrating to watch this stupid scene because yes, Frodo's corrupted, but it's like, dude, just drop it. Like, how could you go through all this and not be ready to drop? Like, yeah. I know the ring and all the. You no, know, it makes narrative it, sense, but like, just from just, a human, like yeah. as an audience member, an interesting change from the books to the movies is, you know, I talked about that curse earlier, and in the book, Frodo puts on the ring, and in the book, Gollum tracks him down and jumps on him and bites his finger off. Which, by mm-hmm. the way should feel very reminiscent because how did the last person that lost the ring, you know, 400 years ago also got it cut off of his finger. But in the book, Frodo and Gollum don't fight. Frodo is basically incapacitated. He's gotten his finger bitten off. He's bleeding profusely. And Gollum is just so joyful to have gotten the ring back that he dances himself off the cliff in, in accordance with the curse, but also just like, it shows you that Gollum didn't have a purpose for the ring. He just wanted it, right? Yeah. And so it wasn't like oh, he wants the ring so he can do X. He didn't think that far ahead. He got the ring back and then didn't plan an exit In some strategy. ways, he was the only pure uh, holder of the ring right. in all in, of its in, history. In some ways, yeah. <laughs> because he he was corrupted by it, but he was never corrupted with a purpose. And I guess you could argue Bilbo and Frodo really just wanted to keep the ring, too. Mm-hmm. They didn't necessarily want to go out and rule. But yeah, no, it's interesting. One thing we talked about was um, real yeah, quick yeah, on yeah. that. That's one of those things where, like we were talking, works really well on the page versus works really well on the screen. And like, I think that would work fine on the screen. I understand why they went the direction, but I do kind of like that implication that he finally gets the ring and is just so overjoyed and not paying attention that he falls into a 
I guess the middle of a volcano. Yeah. If I could make one change to the movies, I would get rid of that fight, the fight between Frodo and Gollum that ends with Frodo over the edge and Gollum falling into the lava. Mm-hmm. Because I think that whole sort of Sam reaching out to him and like making him grow, that's so cheesy. It doesn't need to be there. And again, if you just like if Frodo sets it up with the curse in a, you know, 90 second scene earlier in the movie. Yeah. The audience is going to have the same. Oh, crap feeling when Gollum gets his hands on the ring. Like, oh, it's OK. This is this is exactly what Frodo was talking about. What's going to happen? There's still dramatic tension there. Yeah. And something that was funny that you and I talked about is physics. Gollum hits the lava and sinks into it like it's water and the ring melts. Lava magma, in this case, because it's inside of a volcano, is as dense as rock. Mm -hmm. Gollum would hit it, every bone in his body would break, and then it'd be so hot that the water in his skin would turn to steam and he'd skitter around on the surface of the lava, like when you drop water in a hot pan. There's almost not much difference in hitting (laughs) lava and hitting... Concrete. Or like a solid sheet of ice. Yeah, <laughs> but but I mean I understand I, I I don't it's not one of those things where I'm like well the science says but it's just I always think of it when I watch that scene that in fact Gollum would have been skittering around like water in a hot pan. What did you say about uh, when they were in the the conditions of being near the volcano? Remember what you said? Well, that it, like you mean that it would just be like super hot. And like, then be- I said, but it's a dry heat. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there would be like a thousand degrees and you know poisonous fumes and all that. Yeah, yeah. but it's a dry heat. Yeah, so it's, t- t- yeah, Arizona, we hear you. <laughs> it's funny because they get the ring right. The ring rests on on the, yeah. the magma until it uh, finally. Falls and that in. is a that's a neat subtle thing, right? Where the ring the ring goes out very quietly. It just like gets hot enough to melt. Yeah. It's not the ring doesn't like there's I mean, a giant flash of light and th- all the orcs exactly. don't just turn the, to dust. The things, and the-, <laughs> the things that happen around it are dramatic, obviously, but the ring itself just goes out very quietly. One thing <laughs> I, I liked, but I also had a question because yeah. that is like a common trope nowadays is like destroy the main thing the or the main guy yeah. and then everything else just kind of falls apart and there's nothing like what did the orcs just go? See you guys. I guess we're. We're done. Yeah. Well, so the orcs flee. Um, some of them are killed in the shock wave of the of you know Barador, the the second tower crashing down. Mm-hmm. And they do. I don't know that it's this explicit in the book that like the the earth opens up and swallows them whole. Like I think there is some of that. You see some of them run away. There is this implication that's kind of ugly that Aragorn does maybe do an orc genocide. And like, oh, Aragorn. That like that like Gondor hunts down pockets of orcs. That are causing trouble, ascent causing yeah. trouble, quote unquote. Should be rule number one for it. Don't do a genocide. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, at the end of the day, like the ones that don't get destroyed in the battle or in the sort of aftermath of the destruction of the ring are hunted down and and gotten rid of. I do think one of the coolest moments from that sequence is, you know, the tower falls, the eye explodes in a way that makes the, like the remnants of the tower like shoot away from it. Um, interesting fact when they were making that scene, nine 11 had happened two years earlier and they were explicitly super careful to not to make the fall of that tower look as different as possible from the falling of the two towers. Yeah. That's one of the reasons you have the like explosion of the eye, make it kind of turn to rubble well, as opposed that's to falling that, like, straight down. I mean, even to this day, people will mistakenly say the twin, twin towers. towers when again, yeah. and the, I mean, that's just what the books were called right. when they were written yeah. way, 1955. Way yeah. yeah. Or when they were yeah, released in 1955. Uh, so that's interesting. There's also this like bit of lore that originally Peter Jackson was considering having Aragorn fight Sauron. You know, there's that giant troll that comes out and fights Aragorn like right at the end. And it's really tense. Cause he's about to get stabbed. Mm-hmm. That was originally going to be Sauron and his big armor. They needed the eye to be on the top of the tower for what we just talked about. And also, there's nothing in the books that says Aragorn and Sauron had this like big dramatic final yeah. battle. But when, when in the books, Sauron is back in physical form. Correct. Um, and is destroyed quietly off screen. You ne- In the books, you never... There's the implication that Sauron is does have physical form. He's not... There is no great eye on the top of the tower in the books. That's just his symbol. But yeah, there is no final confrontation between Aragorn and Sauron as much as that's like a modern movie trope. And actually when they were filming it, Viggo Mortensen thought he was supposed to be fighting Sauron. That's how down to the wire that came. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to talk about the coolness of the seat, the, the, where the volcano erupts. Okay. 
because I think that's a really everything about that with the score and the way the actors react. Like there's this triumphant music playing over the volcano exploding at first. Mm -hmm. And it's like, yeah. And then that the way that that's filmed of like the music dropping off and everyone's faces dropping simultaneously when they realize like, Oh, what this must mean, at least at first they think is that Frodo's dead. Like if the volcano just blew up and he threw the ring in the volcano, mm-hmm. he must be dead. I just think there's something really poetic about the way that's everything about that comes together. Like I said, with the music and the cinematography yeah. and the actors, how they react, it's all perfect. I was going to say, I, I'm going to take my chance at throwing one of the the details into there that Admittedly, I learned from you, but I'm gonna I'm gonna try. Now yeah. that we're at the end, okay. They go to save Frodo and Sam. Yeah, the Gandalf, eagles fly in, and they have they have three eagles. Mm-hmm. And if you notice, the eagles pick them up with their feet, so there wasn't anything about like sharing, putting people on, on, the back on their backs or anything, which implies that the third one was for Gollum. Gandalf still had that hope that he could be decorrupted and and saved, and that he would still be alive after making the journey with them. And something that I think is is purported to have happened off screen. Remember, Gandalf asks Faramir, tell me everything you know. Faramir would tell Gandalf, Sam and Frodo were with Gollum. So at least he knows when they left the custody of the Rangers of Gondor, they were going with the three of them. So I think there is also, yeah, I mean, I agree with you that Gandalf assumed that Gollum would be there and worth saving. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, that speaks to the message of these films, which is not just like it's partially the good deeds of small folk, but also that no one's ever so far gone. Except for Sauron. Except for Sauron, although, I mean, Sauron at this point's too far gone, but there's certainly earlier points in his story where there are implications that, like, maybe we could give him a chance at being good again. And every time he's like, uh, nope. Yeah. But well, really, I think it's I, sort of the Superman debate because that's kind of what he becomes when he has the ring, right? right? Yeah, absolute power corrupts absolutely. One of the other biggest differences between the books and the movies. So there's that great scene where Aragorn is coronated. In the books, the scene is called Many Partings. And it's just like people complain about the fact that the Lord of the Rings Return of the King has like four or five endings. But the book has like like 10. Aragorn's coronated. That scene is great with him saying, my friends, you bow to no one. It makes me cry every time. It's just so good. And there's no Chewbacca doesn't get his medal. They they weren't like, but no medal for Pippin. No, (laughs) no, they, they get to be cool. They go back to the Shire. Frodo's not the same in the books. They go back to the Shire. And in that, the closer they get, the more it's like, wait, there's like more crime. Like things look dingy. Like, wait, the Shire's industrial now. What happened? And it turns out that when Saruman escaped Orthanc, he goes to the Shire and like enslaves the hobbits and turns them into like factory workers. <laughs> and uh, Frodo and Sam and Merry and Pippin lead a revo- like a revolution, like make that get the hobbits to rise up and fight Saruman. And All right. it's called the scouring of the Shire. It's how the, the return of the king actually ends. And Saruman is finally killed by hobbit archers and by... Grima stabbing him in that scene because he's killed by Legolas. And he, no, he's killed by Grima in the movies. Remember, he stabs him in the back, and then Legolas shoots and then Legolas Grima. Shoots, yeah, but in the books, like he shows up at the end, he's taken on the nickname Sharky, and is just like a crime boss essentially because he's fallen so far. But he like that sounds really cool and interesting, but would be just too <laughs> yeah, much of too, a left turn agree. at the end of this movie. <laughs> and so. They show that Frodo's not the same. This, this, the Shire wasn't saved for him. And so there's the scene at the end where they go to the Grey Havens, to the boat, and they go to the, as you called it, Elf <laughs> F-Off land. Because <laughs> this is something that I, I guess it went over my head because Jen pointed it out, and then you had a lot more to 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 add to it as far as the facts. But I'm like, what is this Elf F-Off land, and why why are they? They're just done. They're just they're just ready to, to leave all this behind, and I, I guess that's what it is. Yeah, I mean, we can we can spend lots and lots of time on it. Um, I think it's probably better to talk about maybe in the in the Rings of Power segment of our talk because <laughs> it is in the Silmarillion and applies much more to that lore. Mm-hmm. But the short version is the elves were born in Valinor, which is where the Valar, the demigods, live. 
they were born in Middle Earth, but then they traveled to Valinor and they lived there. And then some they started fighting amongst each other, and some of them left after thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Basically, the the Valar said like, "We forgive you." You did terrible things, like your ancestors did terrible things, or some of you did, but you can come back. Mm-hmm. And so there's this idea that as evil, Sauron's evil, starts to rise again in Middle-earth, the elves are just kind of over it, <laughs> one. Two, their powers are diminishing because they've spent enough time away from elf heaven. Three, for reasons that we'll talk about in the future, Tolkien's world starts off as being a flat disc, and then... This whole Atlantis arc happens in the story, and these humans try to sail to Elf Heaven to fight the demigods because they haven't been given immortality. And so the demigods are like, okay, we can't do this anymore. Make the world round, but make Elf Heaven sort of float out in space. And so the only way to get to Elf Heaven is to take a boat from the Grey Havens that goes on what's called the Straight Path, which... In practice, if you're on that boat, it just looks like you're sailing on the sea, but actually you're sailing in a straight line in a spaceship. <laughs> Instead of eventually going over the curve and disappearing. Yeah, you just you sail just... straight on what's called the straight road. It's really, anyway, um, there's a lot to that. But yes, the, there's basically the gods have given the elves this one last chance to go. Gandalf gets to go back because that's where he's from when he was an angel. And Bilbo and Frodo get to go because they were ring bearers. In this, at that, like the second epilogue basically yeah. that this part i was uh jen my wife was mad because i kept asking questions she's like just watch the movie because i was asking like i was like whatever happened to bilbo and then it's like oh there's bilbo yeah. and then i was like i was like wow oh, frodo like doesn't it isn't gonna seem like he did so much with his life art and like what's the and then that kind of yeah. happens and then i'm like what about you know the, the elves effing off and then i was like oh that's exactly where we're going and <laughs> sam eventually gets to go to elf heaven because he carried the ring for a short amount of time he he lives his full life though he goes and gets married he has kids when he's old enough they let him take one of the boats and there's this really sweet thing where legolas and gimli become like best buds and Gimli starts this kingdom and he helps Legolas and his some of his people like settle in a new place after the war because their home was destroyed Gimli and his craftsmen build a mithril door for or mithril gates for Minas Tirith they have this big beautiful gate made of this like impenetrable metal and Legolas and Gimli travel Middle Earth together seeing all the old sites until Gimli gets too old and Legolas takes Gimli to the Grey Havens, and Gimli's the only dwarf that gets to go to Elf Heaven like right before he dies. Does These... he toss him into the boat? <laughs> no. <laughs> but it's it's like this very sweet thing, right? And Gimli is like is a big it's a big deal because he ends up refuting these generations of elf and dwarven hatred and becomes best friends with Legolas and they I mean you kind of could argue like neither one of them it's indicated neither one of them marries, so maybe they're in a relationship together. Who knows? That's at least some people's headcanon. And yeah, it's just very sweet. And something that I want to point out here, because I think it's a, it's a detail in the movies that is often thought of as like the weirdest thing about the movies, which is when Gimli asks for three strands or asks for a strand of Galadriel's hair and gets three. And everyone's like, that's super weird. Like, why is that a thing? And why is it's, and the, the answer is it's a really big deal. If you know the backstory, Galadriel lived in elf heaven 37,000 years ago. And, when the two trees that were the original light lampposts of the world were destroyed, that the spider ate. That the spider ate. A couple of goddesses like sacrificed themselves in order to create the sun and the moon. But Galadriel's hair was said to be the closest thing that existed to the containing the light of the two trees. Right, her golden hair was thought to contain the light of the two trees. And there's this elven craftsman named Feanor, who begs her on three different occasions for a strand of her hair that contains this light because he's this master craftsman and he wants to use her hair to make a beautiful piece of jewelry. She refuses him three times and he eventually makes three gems called the Silmarils, which is where the Silmarillion gets its name. And the Silmarils are the MacGuffin of those stories. Everyone wants them. People start killing each other over them. Morgoth steals them. The elves like make this vow to do whatever it takes to get them back, blah, blah, blah. But Galadriel refuses the offer because it's made in this sort of greedy way. Feanor wants to make these gems, and she has this enough foresight to realize, like, that could be bad. could be very bad. 
Uh, jewelry in this world causing yeah. problems. <laughs> Gimli asks her, you know, even though there's this, these generations of hatred and racism between elves and dwarves, Gimli is so taken aback by Galadriel and her beauty and her grace that he he wants what is he believes the simplest token to remember her by. But it evokes the scene where Feanor asks for her hair three times and is denied. Galadriel gives him three strands of her hair. It's it's a pretty big deal because this caught the her not doing it before led to generations of warfare in some ways or or the someone's reaction to that interaction caused like all these wars to happen. And he asks for it in such a pure way that she's like, this is appropriate. I see, she sees the symbolism and Legolas in seeing how respectful Gimli is of Galadriel. That's when Legolas is like, actually, this guy is different. Like not all dwarves are bad because he's treating her with the same respect that all the other elves are. And so that's why anyway, because that's how Gimli becomes an elf friend. And so it becomes a big deal. And it repairs all these, like like I said, all these years of institutional racism between elves and dwarves. So good job, guys. So Gladriel's hair is like the Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Kind of. In some ways. <laughs> when you said Thanor, it made me think of I don't know if it's over the counter or prescription, but have you ever heard of Theraflu? <laughs> and I wonder if you could, uh, you as an expert and me as a layman, could you replace names with names of prescription drugs? <laughs> and I just go, okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, certainly. As as we discussed, like with the, the films and the Lord of the Rings books, I'm pretty good at names. When we start talking about the Silmarillion, I will want to have some of them in front of me because... They all get pretty yeah. specific, and they're all similar to one another because of their meanings being similar to one another. But yeah, and then Musinex came in, and he yeah. was. But like sometimes it's hard to remember your Fanor from your Finway, and your Galadriel from your Glorfindel, and like <laughs> you know your Sauron and your Saruman are more li- alike than we realize in their origin stories. That was that, actually so. at the beginning of the movie. I was like, that was Which like something is- I had to like. I mean. Visually, I could tell them apart yes. very easily, but yeah. But as far as well, and, and their names are similar because their their backgrounds are similar. And it was we, one of those ones that like those were two names I knew, yeah. but like didn't really like know exactly. There was a distinction. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So anyway, I, I I mean I think we've said as much as we're gonna say about about the books and the movies <laughs> at this point. I you know we went into this whole thing. I knew you were a Game of Thrones fan. I thought it was funny that you weren't a Lord of the Rings fan. If you could like Game of Thrones, I think Lord of the Rings is way more digestible. Well, it, it took a lot of urging from my wife to watch Game of Thrones. And truth be told, she was a little pissed off when I was like, yeah, I'm going to watch Lord of the Rings. And she's like, I've been telling you to watch Lord of the Rings for six years and you wouldn't watch it. But then Daniel says, let's do it on the podcast. And you sit right down and I go, exactly. I'm convincing. <laughs> I, I, my, I will in my voice i go this is for work i do that a lot like on a sunday just like we have to watch this football game because it's, it's for, for work, work. <laughs> yeah well I'm, I'm glad we could do it and now you know if, as if we haven't talked enough in a soon to be released episode we're going to be talking about the silmarillion and the amazon original series the rings of power and what we know and sort of the tie-ins that we've touched on here today so stay tuned for that in the meantime send us lord of the rings memes man like that seems that (laughs) seems like what we need this time around you can do that by finding us on twitter our handle is nerd that's n-e-r-d underscore a-s-s-o-c you can also reach out to us via email nerd at gmail.com let us know what you'd like to hear us talk about there we probably won't do another megasode for a while but like there has to be other megasodes we can do so we'd love your input on that uh thanks for listening and we will talk to you next week 